What's up, everybody? I'm Sam Graham-Felson. I'm Avi Klein. And you're listening to Hey Man, the advice podcast for men. I'm a novelist, Avi's a therapist, and each week we're joined by a guest who helps us answer one of your questions, and hopefully we'll get a few of our own questions answered along the way. Our guest this week is Boyd Vardy. Boyd is a professional lion tracker. That means he is somebody who uses traditional methods to find lions in the like African savanna. It's a pretty uh, interesting job. He recently wrote a book called The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life, which uh, draws on his experiences working with some of the most dangerous beasts in the world and uh, what he learned from that as a man and as a human being. Can you just describe for our listeners what the non-Hollywood version of tracking looks like? Because I think a lot of people, you know, they if they know anything about tracking, it's, it's the idea they have from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or from Lost, you know, when uh, John, what's his name? Locke, is, yeah. John Locke is like, you know, running through the woods, looking at leaves and things like that. What does it actually look like um, in the real world? Well, it's never as, uh, as straight a line as it is in the movies. Yeah. Um, one of the things that happens when you track, a few things happen. The, the one is that you do train yourself to see these very subtle marks that are left down, left on the ground. And it's a phenomenal thing where your eye and your brain, you start to develop a search image, and then suddenly these ve- things that are very faint start to pop for you. So there is a sense of starting to see something that's there, but you have to teach yourself to see that it's there. Um, so that's, that, that's the first part of it. Then you drop into your knowledge of how an animal moves. And the track will tell you more than just a lion walked here. It will tell you the speed the lion was walking at. It would tell you, and the speed will tell you a little bit about his mood. Um, so you sort of go into the energy of the animal and you actually start to tell its story. Is he walking in a straight line? Is he stopping to mark his territory? Is he speeding fast? Is he running? Does that mean there's a, another male lion that's come into his territory? Does that mean he's heard the lionesses have made a kill and he's trying to get to it? So it's a process of, of sort of going into that a kind of storytelling and relationship with the, what, the way the tracks are unfolding. But it's completely nonlinear and you will lose the track. There are times when you think you know exactly what the lion's doing and then he turns off at a right angle. Um, there are times when you're uncertain what's going on. There's times where you have to try things because you've lost the track. There's times when you just stay on the track, track for track, but you move incredibly slowly and you do what they call picking. There's times when you're sort of flowing on the track and you can just drift. As the track drifts left, you drift with it. As it drifts right, you drift with it. And you feel yourself perfectly in flow with the animal. Um, so what I think of the following state, and what happens is when you follow an animal a lot, you go into a kind of state. Um, and I call that the following state. And the following state could be defined as constant, curious, creative response to what is happening. So the track is unfolding. You're using your skill to decipher where it's going. Um, a monkey alarms up ahead, the environment is talking to you, some birds call, an antelope alarms, and, and there's this feeling that everything is, is sort of, you're in tune with everything and you're making these micro adjustments. Um, and that's, that's a very deep place to get to with it, where it's really flowing. Sometimes you get on a track, you think this is going to be a beautiful, easy unfolding, and it just turns into an absolute mission. Um, like if you track a rhino when it's feeding, you know, it walks in, literally walks in circles. So if he's been feeding for a couple of hours, you can do, you know, 30, 40 minutes of circles before you get a sense of where he's gone. <laughs> and that's why it's such a powerful metaphor for finding what you're actually looking for. Because the same, the mentality of the tracker, the process of the tracker, it's if you go down what Jung called like the left path, the path towards finding what makes you feel alive, the path towards finding what fills you up it's not a straight line, you know, that's not, not, there's no straight systematized line to that. It's about being tuned in and being willing to be adaptable and change and learn continuously uh, as you move towards that feeling. So that's, yeah. In a way that sounds a lot like uh, a lot of my work as a therapist, just trying to like how to, what what's happening for a person moment to moment as I'm sitting with them. And I'm, but I'm wondering what's, what's your experience teaching people this that's what is that what you is that what you're doing some of the time is like teaching people the the art of tracking or learning a little bit about how to, yeah, to track absolutely i mean what the way you've described it is is correct i'll give you an example um and this happens fairly regularly people come 
on one of my retreats. And now they're being introduced to an art form that is ancient, but we people haven't done. You know, and those first few days are extremely difficult. But what happens is, is, you know, over the first hour, it's like, what the hell is going on? I don't even know what you're seeing. But slowly, as we coach them, as we start to show them, this is where the foot landed, their brain starts to develop a search image. And then there's this amazing moment after like 30, 40 minutes where suddenly it starts to pop for them. And they start to say, there, I see, the, the, I see where the grass has been pushed down. I see where the foot scuffed. I see where the animal turned. I see where some mud rubbed against the tree there. And that moment is incredibly important because I'm using cracking as a doorway to start to do inner work. And the idea is, is that your life is speaking to you. And there is a part of you, there is a place deep inside of you that is wild, that is essential, and that knows what brings it to life, that knows what feeds it and nourishes it. But unfortunately, that wild place inside of us is so overlaid by our social conditioning, what we should do, what, how, how we should be, what success is defined by the outside, that we have lost touch with it. And so what happens is over the course of tracking an animal, when people start to realize like, oh my gosh, I can teach myself to see that track. I'm saying there's a track inside of you. You can teach yourself to see that, but it's about being present. It's about le learning to tune back into the instrument of the body. And it's about to start to, to actually be aware when something that expands your energy, something that brings you to life, something that that you feel yourself sort of sitting forward in your chair actually happens that you're present enough to catch it. Um, and so, you know, inner work is always learning to be in touch with the feeling as opposed to the rationale of what I should do. How does it feel? How, do, how does this work make me feel? How does, how does when I see that, that thing, what, what feel, how do I know when I'm feeling pulled to something? How do I know when I feel touched by something? How do I know when something expands my heart? And for most men, you know, it's from the neck up. Um, so we have to learn again to be in touch with a different way of living. And what I find is if, if I try and talk to men about this, you know, get in touch with, your, get in touch with the feeling. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? Right. Yeah. It's like we go out and we track an animal and we start to see that there's information there, but I can teach myself to see it. it, it the metaphor is strong. It starts to take you into that feeling of presence and it starts to say, okay, uh, my, there is something for me that uniquely for me, you know, one of the things that I say in the book is that there's nothing more healing than finding your gifts and sharing them. Mm. And we all have something unique to offer. We all have something really rich to offer. And it comes out, it wants to express itself differently for everyone and it makes us unique. Um, so once you've achieved the ideals of the culture and you realize, well, actually that's not giving you what you really need. Um, well, then you have to start tracking towards that deep inner place. And, and that is like a tracker. You have to learn the way the trail of your authentic life speaks inside of you. And you have to start to tune to it. We had a, a, a man on um, a few weeks ago who uh, one day he woke up from a dream that he was knitting. And, um, you know, most men, I think, would probably be embarrassed to even have a dream about yeah. knitting uh, and then just forget about it. But this guy um, decided that he was going to try knitting. He had never tried knitting his entire life. He's a n normal guy from, from New York city. Um, but he just allowed himself to experiment. And it turned out that this was the passion of his life. He became uh, a, a very successful knitter. And, uh, and we were just struck by, you know, how rare that is, particularly for men to do something, um, that does kind of make them feel alive and, um, at full attention the way you were describing. Instead, it seems like most men, even, even us included, um, spend a lot of their lives, not just professionally, but interpersonally doing what we think we should be doing as men. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's, it, it just struck me as, as really relevant. Are most of the, the, the people that, um, you work with men, do you work with women too? I'm curious, is there a difference in, in the receptivity to, to, to the kind of message you're, mean, you're talking about? I mean, I, I work with both. Yeah. Um, over the last little while I've felt my work swing more towards working with men because I felt a hunger in men to start to, you know, work out 
what actually feeds them. And what you're saying to me is, you know, about the knitting is, is fascinating. Um, basically, like the way that I see it is, uh, and this may be helpful, it may not be, but there are a set of ideals that the culture and, you know, modern life constantly presents you with. And it's, it's nonstop. This is how you should be. This is how you should be. And then as a man with a good heart, you know, you want to, you want to look after your family. You want to do these things. So you start to put everything aside to achieve those ideals of success as defined by the culture. And then one of two things happens. Either you don't achieve what you were told to constantly be and you start feeling like there's something wrong with you or you do achieve it and you realize, well, that wasn't it. Right. You know, and, and so I think that's what one of the dynamics that we're all living with. But and then it starts to become like, OK, well, if it's not what I've been told to be and you reach that juncture, then what is it? And that becomes the beginning of the journey. And the thing that's been amazing to me is we don't get given the full answer, you know, like right away. We it starts to become a process of going inward and starting to self-define a set of internal metrics for yourself um, that are very, very personal. So, you know, I can never say to someone, if you do this, you'll be happy. No, you start the process. And then amazing things start to happen when, when, pe- when we start to become present again and start to tune in. And it's like when I knit, you know, this guy, who's this like super unexpected thing. But when he does that, he becomes incredibly present. He becomes tuned into something. And he opens a portal through which something through which he becomes uniquely himself by allowing something greater than him to come through him in this very intricate artistic process that I'm sure requires a lot of attention. And the minute that quality of attention comes online, he's in tune with something very purposeful to him. Um, one of the things that really struck me reading your book is... Um you know, I mean, it's one. I, I agree that there um, there are p- powerful analogies between the literal work of tracking um, in the bush that that you do when you're back home in South Africa, um, and uh, you know the inner work um, that that people have to do if they want to find something that really resonates with them. But I think one pretty crucial difference is that when you're tracking in the bush there's incredibly high stakes because it's actually quite dangerous, right? Um, it's literally life or death at times. Um, and, um, and, uh, there, there was one incident that you just glancingly talked about in the book, but you gave a Ted talk about, which, which is what happened with the alligator, with the crocodile, um, which you said gave you PTSD. And I don't know if it's something you even like talking about, cause it's probably not a great feeling to return to that. Um, but uh, but that was one thing that that struck me is just just how, um, not just how horrible that must have been, but I was just amazed that you continued to go back to the work of tracking <laughs> after that. Um, and and um, I, before I ask the the next question, I want to ask <laughs> about the incident you do talk about, the dangerous incident you do talk about in the book. I'm just curious, like how did you um, how did you go about curing that PTSD successfully enough that you were able to re-enter this work. Uh, Maybe you could just, if you want, only if you want, just share the story of sure, what happened. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, um, well, I, there were there were a few parts to my journey. Um, when I and and I'll I'll give you a few of them. When I was 18 years old, uh, I was briefly in Johannesburg. My family had a small house there, and when they were commuting through Johannesburg. Um, they would, we would stay in this house and then we would go into the wilderness, which was where we actually lived. But one night during that time, South Africa was going through a time where it was incredibly politically unstable. Um, and there was a lot of violent crime around at that time. And uh, one of those nights we were home invaded and it was myself and my sister and my mother. And we had a tutor at that time, a woman who was our teacher. And we were subjected to about a three hour um, at gunpoint situation. Mm. And that was a, a very, very uh, terrifying experience for oh, me yeah. to, to look around at your family and see them tied up. And be powerless. And, yeah. and to be powerless to it. And to also be involved in the strange dynamic where like I grew up around animals. And one of the things about animals is that if you can read their body language, it's almost a language of presence. 
they tell you all the time where they're at. They tell you where the boundaries are. They tell you when you've come too close and they're honest. One of the things about being held at gunpoint by a bunch of pretty volatile and people who were pretty traumatized themselves, I should imagine, yeah. is that you couldn't read where it was going. So that was the first one. And then about, um, so that was a very traumatizing experience. And luckily we got out of it unharmed. We were able to talk ourselves sort of through it and maintain an energy of like a very sort of almost calm energy. Like you weren't going to escalate like, like everything was just using our energy to bring things down, you know? And, and so we got through that. And then um, about six months after that, I, w I was in the bush. I had some people with me and I was sitting in the river and it was clear water running over sand. And I thought to myself, you know, I can see here. It's, it's very clear and it was fairly shallow. shallow. And then there was a place where um, the, the kind of sandbank dropped off. But again, it was like it was it was pretty shallow. But I don't know if you've ever seen a crocodile go underwater, but what happens is, is you can see it, you can see it, you can see it, and then suddenly you can't. Hmm. And within like a few inches is the difference between when you can see it and where you can't see wow. it. And the croc had those few inches. And I was sitting on the edge of where the water dropped off, and the croc came out and he grabbed me by the leg, on my right leg. My foot went literally into his mouth. And when the first thing you notice about a crocodile when he bites you is the tremendous force of the bite. Just... Like you, you can't How, believe like that all of their muscles are geared towards closing that mouth. Yeah. And then he pulled me and as he pulled me, I reached up and I grabbed a branch. So I had, That's had kind something. of amazing. In and I know, it was like total like grace of the moment, yeah. you know, and started to shake me, went to bite me a second time. And as he opened his mouth to bite me the second time, my foot went down his throat and he spat me out. Wow. And at that already I was screaming because I had people with me who I was sort of essentially guiding I was screaming at them to get away from the bank. And then I kind of pulled myself up into this tree and onto the bank. And my friend who was with me and my tracker, who was a guy called Soliam Shongo, he turned and he ran straight uh, into the water. And there was a channel between us. I was on the bank now and he knew that between him and I, there was a crocodile somewhere and he just kept coming. And, you know, he just became my absolute hero in mm. that moment. Waded right through where he knew the croc was, grabbed me, pulled me up onto the bank. When I got up onto the bank, I heard a voice in my head and it was my uncle's voice from when I was seven years old. And when I was seven years old, he would take me, he'd drop me in the river and then he would wait downstream of the rapid and you would get washed down, then he would grab you. You jump in, you get washed down and he would grab you and pull you to the side. And once when that had happened, and I remember this lesson so clearly, he missed me mm -hmm. and I got washed down the river and I started to get in a panic and when he eventually pulled me out and I think of all of these little experiences now as initiations when he pulled me out he said to me buddy you never panic in the bush mm. you never panic keep your head cool if you start to panic you start to your, he said your brain turns to sponge you gotta, <laughs> you gotta be cool when I got up onto the bank after the croc had bitten me I literally heard his words and I felt myself uh, going into presence and I've, what I've learned is that you can train yourself to, to actually go into presence. Started to go into presence, did a first aid on myself, called in my own medevac, calmed everyone around. Leg was absolutely um, mangled uh, and managed to get myself to help. And I'll never forget my friend Alex, who I talk about in the bush, uh, sorry, in the book, he, he phoned my mom to tell her. And he said, uh, hi, Shan, uh, this is Alex. I'm calling... Um, yeah, no, we, we got a little bit of rain last night. Uh, it's really a uh, place is looking beautiful at the moment. Also, uh, your son got attacked by a crocodile. <laughs> so, but what happened to me after those, um, those encounters is I was frozen. Mm. There was a part of me that became frozen. And in a funny way, this was my journey towards being interested in healing because I was frozen. I was numb. Um, I couldn't really feel anything, which is the effects of what trauma does to you. Um, I felt, you know, I felt the dulling sense of, of depression that comes. And then, you know, I would get, I would get on the bottle sometimes to feel just to like, you know, either not feel anxious or to feel something or to like get away from it, that yeah. feeling of depression. So yeah. you know, I was drinking fairly heavily in my early twenties. Um, and 
Then I was working as a safari guide while all of this was going on. And this woman who became my mentor, Martha Beck, arrived and I took her on safari. And I could feel like a connection, just an energetic thing. Like I could just feel she's a fascinating, interesting and brilliant person. I mean, just talking to her, you got that. And then eventually on the like third day of me being the safari guide, you know, she said to me, she kind of said, look, I'm, I'm here, I'm ready. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? And she said to me, I can see what's going on with you. And I'm here. Do you want to talk about it? And, I, you know, it's an interesting thing when someone just sees you like that for a moment. And, you know, I'd been covering it all up. I'd been trying to manage it. I'd been acting like nothing was wrong. I didn't need to process this shit. I'm good, you know. And she was just like, I can see you're battling with this. Well, and she says, I don't know what's happened, but I'm, I'm with you. And it just broke me. Like, yeah. And, she, and the, the, she knew what was going on. And there's so much compassion. And then she... She was like, come, sit down. And it was like this weird situation where I was supposed to be the big safari guide. I'm like crying in the car park next to my Land Rover and this woman's just like holding me. Yeah. And, and the reason that I got interested in the dynamics of healing and that I believe that we can heal is because I healed. And, you know, when I first heard like the idea of life coach, I'm, I mean, to be honest with you, as like a beer drinking, rugby playing South African, I was like, what have the Americans come up with now? You know? Yeah, yeah. But... But she guided me through the process of healing. She helped me get in touch with deeper parts of myself. She helped me move through the trauma. She helped me let it go. She helped me bring compassion to some of the parts of myself that I felt, you know, you know where I felt like I should have done better. Um, she helped me. She took me through all of those dynamics, and, and she became my first mentor. Um, and, and so that became the beginning of my journey. And when, when someone has helped you heal, you become someone who wants to help other people heal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I don't think there's anyone who's engaged in healing work who isn't intimately familiar with a feeling of brokenness. A, a feeling of brokenness. And, and then, you know, I started to feel myself changing. And then we started to run groups together and I started to see other people change. And I started to realize that you can ignore... Um, you can ignore inner work for a long time and you can build a, a huge outward persona, but at some point it's going to come for you. Something is going to happen in your life where you're going to have to learn to be in touch with yourself. Um, as I'm getting on a tangent here, but the, the, maybe one final thing is through all of that, the other thing that the whole, all of these experiences gave me was a, a model for power that was different in some ways. And for me, it became rather than power through dominance or power through external, it became about power through presence. So the ability, and to me that became the ability to be very, very close to the, what the moment asked of me. And sometimes it might ask intensity. Sometimes it might ask for a certain kind of aggression. Some kind of, it might ask for a defense. Sometimes it might ask for a, a profound tenderness. Sometimes it might ask for something very receptive. Sometimes it might ask for something very directive. And my ability to be at one and comfortable within all of that was became my kind of definition of being um, powerful. You know, another thing I was struck by in the book was your um, discussion of your father's instruction to figure it out for yourself. Is that the phrase that he used? Something like that. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and I don't mean this as a, as a criticism of him. And that's actually, I think, can be very valuable advice in some respects, but it did seem to me like, um, you know, in a, in a sense you were primed, um, after these traumas to respond in this very stoical way of, uh, I don't need help. I don't need, um, to be vulnerable. I don't need to be weak. I just need to figure this out for myself. And, um, and I wonder, I'm, I'm just curious if, um, you know, how, how your relationship to your childhood and even to your, to your dad changed after you started doing this healing work, which, which seems kind of different from the values that you were raised by from him. Oh man, it's such a, it's such a good question. And it's such an amazing question. Um, because, uh, well, okay, well, how do I start with that? Um, I had to unlearn so much of that absolute stoic nature. I, and, I, and I didn't have any models for it. And what I realized is that what my father gave me is what was given to him by a father who was a lion hunter. You know, you just like, you don't go into it. You, you, 
you're absolutely, you just push through and you don't dwell in any of that stuff and you just keep going. But it's what I, unfortunately, it's the case of, you know, if all you've got is a hammer, everything's a nail and it doesn't allow for a broader experience of life. And I'm glad I've got that gear. I'm glad that there are places in my life where I know I can put my head down and, and push, but I'm even happier that I started to get mentorship first through this woman and then through a, a man who became a very important teacher to me of how to do it differently. And what, what happened is that as I started to heal, um, my relationships around me started to heal. So, I mean, I'll give you like a classic father-son example. Um, I, I had a sort of a sense of what I wanted to do. And I wanted to start to create from the time that I was in my twenties, you know, it's what, like, what could be weirder than wanting to like do healing work for other people in your twenties? I mean, but yeah, I just, I I, you know, it's like, <laughs> I wanted to do that, but like what, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. So I, you, I had to build towards all of this, but I would sort of, I would say to my father, who's like the most incredible get up and go guy, like, this is what I'm trying to, this, this is what I'm trying to do. And he would say to me, well, get on with it, do it. And all of my shame would come up. And instead of being able to be in conversation with him, the shame would overwhelm me and I'd be like, you know, you don't know what I'm trying to do. You know, I am trying to do it. And we would go into conflict and I would push away because he was sort of saying to me, do this thing I wanted to do that I didn't know how to do. And then I felt ashamed of myself. So I was like, you don't get it. You know, the classic like. What do you think you were ashamed of? Um, I was ashamed that I wasn't there yet, mm -hmm. you know, and there was and I, I was ashamed that I didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, he was someone who had built a business from the time he was a kid, you know, and I was like trying to do it, but I didn't know how. And then through getting me mentorship from another male mentor, I, I remember distinctly the day he said to me, um, well, get on with it, do it. And I said to him, can you help me? I don't know how. And what happened was the shame had subsided enough that I had access to something, a different outcome. And the outcome was simply saying, I don't know how to do it. Do you know? And in that moment, it was so simple almost. The whole dynamic changed. And he was like, yeah, I do know. <laughs> and I was like, well, what would I do? And there was humility there as opposed to defense. And he was like, well, we need a plan. We need, you know, we need, a, we need to map this thing. We need to work out how we would market it. We need to work out. And suddenly we were in this incredible co-creative dialogue because, and, and I was able to say to him, and he was able to respond, hey, I need your guidance. Here's specifically what I need from you. Um, here's how I would like you to help me. Instead of just being like, oh, you don't get me. And when I was able to ask him specifically, he was able to step forward to that because I was being very clear and our, our dynamics started to change. And then the relationship started to heal because I wasn't just being overwhelmed by the feeling of you don't get me, you don't know who I am. Probably yeah. felt really good for him to, to be able to help, you I mean, know. And um, he became this incredible support in helping me build the work that I wanted to build, which is unusual work. You know, I was making it up. I was creating a different model and just became this incredible, incredible support inside of it. All of it leads back to how present you can be. You know, mm -hmm. that is like, that's the be all and, and end all of this journey. And, and it starts to translate. I mean, I'm, I'm, this may be a tangent, but... You know, as a part of when I was young too, I used to lead for a while. I was a leader on the guiding team, but I was young. There were people on the guiding team who had been on the guiding team, you know, the guys who take people out on these safaris, who had been on for a much longer period of time. And I think this may illustrate all the way back to the lion, that, you know, I was young, I was a leader on the team, but I didn't really know what we should be doing, but I was sort of given this position of leadership and so I would go in uh, to the meetings with guys who'd been guiding for years longer than me. And, and I would pretend like I knew what I was doing because I felt like that's how I need to now show up. Okay, here's what we're going to do. And there would be this kind of like, there would be these blank faces that would stare back at me and I would like try and show that I'm the leader. And then one day working with this other uh, man who became my mentor, we were sitting down, we were going into a ceremony and ceremonies are just, you know, gathering spaces. And he said to me, uh, you know, you have a very ambiguous relationship with your power. Hmm. And I was like, and then he moved on in the group. <laughs> and I was like, hmm? and then later I said to him, Hey, uh, you know, wh what do you mean? I have an ambiguous relationship with my power. 
And I remember, never forget, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, and he sort of like hugged me almost. He said, you want me to tell you? And that, that should have been the warning. And he, I was like, yeah, I want you to tell me. He said, you sure you want to know? And I was like, yeah, I want to know. And then he just hit me with the most intense truth. He was like, I can see that you're pretending like you know what you're doing and you don't actually have a fucking clue. <laughs> and to me, I just see an act at play and you, have, you, you don't have actually any ground under you. You're just a little kid pretending to be big. And it was, but, but I must say we had trust, him and I, we had trust, but it hurt yeah. so much. It because it's just hearing it. <laughs> it. It hurt so much because it was true. And you would never do that with someone who you didn't have trust with, but he yeah. had already been there for me through a lot. And I was, I, I was like, get away from me. Just get the hell away from me. And I felt this hurt and shame and sadness. And, and it just, it just burst up. Um, and I never forget, like I went outside, I couldn't be around people. It was too much because it was too much. And it's it, so it, exposing. It's so exposing. And it only hurts like that when you go into your shadow, mm -hmm. you know, your shadow is all the things you you're holding back, you know, that you, that you kind of are, but you, that doesn't fit your self identity as a man. Like I'm in command. I can handle this. I can lead. Well, here comes all the, these other truths that were true at that time. And I, and I couldn't be around anyone. It was just too much. I felt so exposed. I felt so weak. And I spent the next day being like, oh, fuck, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Okay. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. That's the little boy. I'm, I'm pathetic sometimes. Like sometimes I'm pathetic. Yeah. Let that in. There's sometimes where I feel absolutely frozen, where like I know that I should know what to do, but I don't. So I let that in. And I spent a whole day just like, you know, letting, letting in some truths about myself that were not that great. And... Then him and I connected again and he started to help me integrate it. And, and I never forget in the first meeting I went to with the guiding team after that experience, I walked in and I, I was humbled by the fact that I was so far from perfect and I didn't know. And I sat down and I was like, guys, you know, here's what we have to achieve. I don't know how to do this. And the whole energy in the room was different. Mm -hmm. we were, suddenly we were in, a, we were in a, a more honest dynamic with each other. And then weirdly, people would say, well, we can try this, we can try that. And I was present enough to say, I really think that's a great idea. We're going to go with that. And, and like weirdly, when I gave up needing to know, there were things that I knew, mm -hmm. you know, and I was actually able to be there. Um, so all the way back to like those kind of things, having experiences like that away, all of that starts to make you more present. All of that, you know, it's like, I'm not trying to pretend when a lion charges me that I'm not afraid. I can feel that, but I can be with it. Hmm. So I'm not trying to act like I'm a macho guy, like I can stand no down a line. It's like, yeah. oh, I feel, I feel the energy. I feel this is pretty terrifying, but it's okay. I'm here with it. I can yeah. be with it. It's not, I'm not trying to manage it. I'm not trying to control it. And, you know, if, if you're a man, you're probably trying to manage or control something. <laughs> uh, but instead of just being able to be with it and let it teach you, let it show you. So that, that segues actually very elegantly into one final question I want to ask you before we um, turn it over to the advice question. Um, uh, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but uh, Nelson Mandela is one of my heroes. I'm not alone. He's one of zillions of people's heroes. Um, uh, and um, uh, shortly after he died, I read his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom. And the thing that I remember most from it, and actually I read it right before the birth of, uh, of, of my first child. And, uh, and I, I was, I was reading it in part because I wanted to look at a man who I admired almost above all men as like a model for the kinds of, uh, uh, lessons about masculinity and manhood that I wanted to try to pass on to my son. And, um, and the thing that struck me most was when he admits that he was terrified all the time, but even though he was scared, um, he, he still acted decisively. He still acted in, in the face of his fear, uh, courageously. And, um, so I just have to ask you, like, um, you know, I asked you about getting charged by a lion cause I've never met someone who's been charged by a lion. <laughs> I've also never met somebody who, um, hosted Nelson Mandela at, at his home, which you did. Um, can you just, just quickly, before we go into the advice question, can you just tell us what impression just being around him shortly after he was freed from prison um, 
had on you? Um, so every every morning, my uncle would go out and he was a documentary filmmaker. He would make films. He would come back and he had this huge table in his house and he would sit at the head of the table and Nelson Mandela would sit to the left of him and they would have a casual breakfast together. This was prior to him becoming president. And they would chat and they had a good relationship. And it was in my uncle's home and it was relaxed. And they did this every morning. It was their ritual. Um, flash forward, a delegation of the ANC, the African National Congress Party, were coming in to meet with the future president. And they were having a lunch at the camp. It was now a very formal gathering. And my uncle was invited to the lunch. So in an extremely rare moment of tact for my uncle, um, he said, Mr. Mandela, please, you must sit at the head of the table. You know, it's official. And Mandela grabbed him by the hand and, and, and sort of held his hand for a long time and said to him, no, JV, I would never take your place at the head of the table. Please take a seat. And there was just this tiny moment of honoring a little ritual and routine that they were in that, that was more human than the formality of how the moment should look. And that's where Mandela was incredible. He humanized every moment. Mm. Walking through the halls of parliament, he meets a member of the national apartheid government, people who'd oppressed um, his people, people who had killed people that he knew well, and he would greet members of the other party in their language, in Afrikaans, inquire about their family, and humanize the moment before going into the business you know, the business of the moment. And then when he got into the business of the moment, he was formidable, absolutely formidable. There was nothing warm and fuzzy about him. He knew what he had to achieve and he got it on the table and he had gears. You know, he was able to be incredibly strong in a negotiation, but always human. And, and everyone in South Africa, we all felt like we had an encounter with him. It was like he was everywhere. It was like the presence spread. Um, and he was just someone who I think had an experience, you know, what they might call a shift in consciousness, uh, an awakening experience. He was just absolutely at one with the moment mm. and able to meet it with, with such depth, such beauty, such kindness and such a formidable nature. Thank you. Let's, let's, uh, yeah. Uh, it's, Pause for a second. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very inspiring and just like, I don't know, I was looking at the paper before we met and it's like so, it feels so good to be reminded of a kind of leadership when you're like, what the hell is going on right now? You know, like but for, for those, this will air probably like a month from this recording, but yeah. we are like right in the midst of uh, this Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. And Donald yeah. Trump, Donald Trump literally the, yesterday in the paper um, talking about uh, a report that he was talking to his aides about wanting to build um, crocodile-filled moats right, to, and, and to shoot, kill immigrants shoot, uh, yeah. that were trying to cross the uh, border. So anyway, <sighs> different kind All of right. leadership. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Well, we're going to move into the advice question, and we'll yeah. see. We'll see. I hope, uh, yeah. hope lion tracking can uh, translate across <laughs> to some good advice. Yeah. I think you could have a lot to offer this person. <laughs> hey, man. I'm 47 years old and have worked my entire adult life as an actor. I know I'm lucky to have made a career out of it, but I'm struggling. Like most working actors, I've had good years and lean years, but the last couple of years have been particularly lean. In the past, even, even if I only booked one big job a year, I still got steady work with commercials, etc. But in the last few years, everything has dried up. I work maybe once a month. I've supplemented it with some other gigs, but otherwise I have a lot of time on my hands. This all coincides with some big life changes. My wife and I had two kids and moved to the suburbs. Luckily, her career has taken, up, has taken off, otherwise we'd be really stressed. Basically, to be useful, I spent a lot of my free time taking care of our home and kids. I'm left feeling like a house husband. I love our kids, but this is not how I envision my life. I'm dependent on other people to do the work that I love. I think other people might say it's, it's time to find another career, but I'm not ready to let acting go. Still, I can't just stay at home and be depressed waiting for more work to come my way. What should I do? Signed, Wasting Away in Westchester. We have a house husband here. No, just kidding. Well, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Now but here. I was for, for a while. So you I, can relate to... Yeah, yeah. I, um, I wrote uh, a novel, um, and after it was published, um, kind of... Um, was attempting to quickly write another one, but it was hard to do. And, uh, that coincided with the birth of my son. Um, 
a year and a half later, I had another kid with my wife, daughter. And yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of uh, the past couple of years taking care of the kids. And that has been, as someone with professional ambitions, it's it's been hard to, uh, yeah, it's been hard to to both feel like I'm struggling in my career and feel just the generally overwhelming nature of being a stay-at-home parent. It's just hard all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, so I, I relate yeah. to uh, to what he's going through, although I think what he's experiencing is a more unique thing because being an actor is a particularly tricky thing for a man or a woman. It's just a fact that the older you get, the harder it is to get roles. Sure. Whereas if you're a writer, you could, actually the older you get, probably the better of a writer you yeah. often become and... <laughs> You know, most people publish their best stuff in their 50s and 60s. So it's not, this is a unique thing that, you know, he's facing. I don't really know what it feels like to just be powerless to do what you want to do. You know, like I I feel like all of us are sort of living out our passions in some way. And I couldn't imagine not being able to do this. Like, that's my whole life. Um, So I would imagine it. It must feel so demoralizing. Um, he doesn't. He sort of says that in a quiet way, but I bet he's living with that day to day. Yeah, and he, and he's not alone, you know, because what he's onto there is a a central cultural paradigm, which is that you are what you do, mm-hmm. and uh, and that uh, it seems it seems to me that a lot of men are stuck in that on both sides either in they're not getting to do what they're meant to do or um, they can't transition out of doing this one thing they've always done that's given them, that's been their meaning, you know? Um, so it's like, a, it's a very deep thing. We're inside of a, that type of structuring. It's all about what you're doing and as defined from the outside. What are things that you can start to do now, what I call the first track? small things you can start to do now that just start to make you feel better, that start to energize you, that start to make you feel more present. Start with where you are, because otherwise, you, otherwise you're giving away the power to some job in the future that is going to, if you book it, is going to make you feel better. And so start to create in the moment. What, what feels a little bit better? What are some small steps I can take towards um, what feels good to me? What actually does feel good to me now? How could I? How can I bring the feeling of acting, the feeling that acting gives me, into this moment? Um, and so, to start to be creative, he's obviously a creative person. How do we start to be creative inside of this moment? Um, and how do we start to take a little bit of action towards what feels a little bit better? Um, you know, there may be an opportunity. I mean, these are maybe not not things that he would be interested in, but like, um, if you love to act. How, how do you just get into that feeling now? How do you share acting with other people? Who can you connect with? Just start to go into the feeling of being in your craft because it's, I, I feel like that's going to be the key is how do you go into the feeling of being in your craft? Yeah. You know, Boyd, as you're saying that I'm realizing like, um, so to be clear, I, I actually now do have a, <laughs> a job, uh, a day job. Um, but, but funnily enough, the day job I have kind of came out of following a, different first track from writing, um, which was podcasting, um, doing this with Avi, which, you know, uh, knock on wood someday we'll be paid big bucks (laughs) for, but for now we're shoestringing this on our own. Um, uh, but, but when Avi approached me and said, are you interested in doing a podcast? Um, this is at a moment where I was thinking, all I want to do is write fiction, not even nonfiction. I just want to write fiction and nothing else will do. And, and, because it wasn't going well, I was thinking of myself as a failure and feeling real despair, thinking if I don't get out of writer's block, um, I'll just be in this morass of failure forever, whatever, you know, those kind of dark thoughts. Um, but the, the, what was interesting about podcasting is that it, it, it connected me to a kind of feeling I get from writing, which is expression, which is uh, forcing myself to dive into... Um, emotional territory, you know, something I don't necessarily do in my day-to-day life, uh, all the time, but I do when I'm writing, when I'm writing, I try to explore the deepest emotions I can. And, you know, that's something that I knew doing a podcast with Avi about, you know, questions arising from, from what it means to be a man. 
might do. So anyway, just doing that, having that transition, I never thought I would get into podcasting. It was not one of my ambitions. Um, but making that transition uh, of just opening up to a different kind of track was had, had wonderful results. And by the way, like I'm, I'm now... Uh, I don't want to make this story seem too positive because it's not like everything in my life is perfect, but I am, I am actually now r still writing fiction and the pressure has been taken off of the fiction because mm -hmm. now I'm doing other things. Mm -hmm. And so it just strikes me like, I think, I think if he could find some, some other thing that gives him that same kind of feeling that he gets when he's acting, it's not like he has to even give up acting. He I just has to realize that maybe acting isn't necessarily his bread and butter forever, you know, like well, it I, used to be. I appreciate you saying that because I did want to sort of speak up for like, I don't know, the people I know, like acting is hard. You know, like making a career as an actor is really hard. I have, I've seen a number of actors in my therapy practice and like what you have to sacrifice to even do that. It's super hard. Yeah. It's not very, like most people, it's just, it's like, like when you turn it into a profession, it's not very, it's not rewarding in the, in whatever drew you in you have to find something new. So to have like, to have a long-term relationship with something and have it taken away from you before you're ready, my heart really goes out to him. And I can imagine him saying, like, I don't want to give this up. Like, this isn't fair, right? That's is pretty much what he's saying. And so I appreciate you saying, like, you don't actually have to give it up. You just also have to find another way to have meaning at the same time. It's yes. not a competition. Totally. I, I, as you're both talking, I, I'm thinking that's the key. Right now, when he wakes up in the morning, um, I think he's making it also about a financial thing. Like, this is what I have to do to make a living. Well, it's not happening right now. So wake up in the morning and start making things that feel good. Start creating, start generating for yourself um, and generate without knowing where it's going. Because actually the feeling of waking up and creating, you know, the feeling of getting up and podcasting, knowing like, okay, it's not paying the bills in any way, but you're applying yourself um, to a creative outlet and then you don't know where it's going to go. Um, so if for him, it'll be like, wake up, um, and tune into the wilder part of yourself and say, what do I want to create? How do I want to play with, the, with, the, with being alive today? And, and I think that just starting to step into that feeling state and getting out of the, oh, there's no acting jobs and getting, and I say that with no judgment, and getting into the, what do I want to create? And let yourself just create outside of um, maybe any framework that you have and see what starts to happen. Part of the process of tracking, you know, trackers live with, you got to go without knowing. Like right now, I don't know what to do. So start trying some things. You've been on the track of acting. You've lost the track. Do what a tracker does. Start trying some different things. Start tuning into your body and just noticing what makes you feel good. Um, what makes you feel a little bit more energized. Just a little bit more energized. Um, start to do a little more of that. Um, find some small steps you can take towards things that again, make you feel a little more alive. Consistent small change is going to be really powerful and start to open up to the idea, you know, life's a magical thing. It, and I've seen this coaching now, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. If you say, you know, I've, I've been in the role of an actor for a long time, but something is shifting around that, you know, and life is shifting it. Well, I need to, in, instead of decrying that, I'm going to start to pay attention again and I'm going to start finding things that fulfill me as a tracker. It's not all going to be given to me at once, but I'm going to start to pay attention in a different way, start taking some small steps and interestingly, start letting yourself work out what feels good for you. And I mean the feeling in the body. Um, things start to pop. When people make that shift, they say, okay, I'm looking for something else now. I'm looking for what feeds me. Life will start to show you things. Things start to come into your fields. Things start to show up. Um, so I think to accept um, where he is and then to start trying to get back into a state of play and creation and try some things without knowing exactly where they're going and just step towards anything that feels creative and fun and playful and energizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about that. And as I was listening to you, I was thinking like, Sometimes like creativity brings its own kind of fear sometimes like when you're in the unknown, right? Yeah. But then the there's also the sort of fear that gets in the way of being creative at all, which I certainly s struggle with, which is probably more like a self-criticism. It's not really fear. It's like 
self-criticism, shame, things like that. Uh, you know, I'm not good enough or that kind of anxiety type of situation that stops you in your tracks, you know? Um, and I'm thinking about this guy and, and it, it's hard to be playful when you're like, you know, I didn't fucking go to college. Like I've just been an actor for 27 years or whatever. Like now I have to figure out some other way to make money. Like it's stressful, you know? Um, and I'm just thinking about advice to give him to like, how do you have, it's not so fun. But you know what though? I mean, I think we could have a discussion, a different kind of discussion about, uh, somebody who, has been making money off of acting and is genuinely relying on that income for his family. Mm -hmm. Um, and what do you do when the thing that, you know, not only has been your life's passion, but also your source of income for your family. Right. Like your survival is dependent on this. But this is a more unique situation. What this guy is facing. His wife is the breadwinner. His wife is making a lot of money and they're actually okay financially. And I think that just something worth reflecting on for him and, you know, for, for, us too, frankly, is like, um, there's something that I think a lot of men feel uncomfortable about the idea of, um, not earning money, even if their wife is earning money, (laughs) you know? And, um, and I wonder like, you know, he, he actually is in the luxury of a position of not needing to earn money. It seems to me that like society is telling him that he should be earning money. He doesn't, he doesn't, their family doesn't need it from him. And, so he's actually in a luxurious position of having the opportunity to play a little bit more. Um, if he'll let himself. If he'll let himself. So he's really like, I mean, a lot of us, look, a lot a lot of us are not privileged enough to even um, do, uh, or at least feel like we can't even do any of this experimentation because we're too under the gun financially. And this guy is in a lucky position where he, he can let himself experiment without having really any negative impact on his family. Well, you know, one of the things that always comes around in, in coaching work is when you start to realize that what you're believing is not always true. It's just, a, it's just a belief you've had a lot. So, you know, the belief, something has been taken from me mm-hmm. and now I have nothing to offer. Well, if you actually question that belief, uh, you might find that something has been given to you and you have a lot to offer. Well, for one, you have time to offer at home. Um, you have space to explore different parts of your creativity. You have um, you have the room to go on a, another journey. Uh, there's a way that it's asking you to redefine yourself. So um, it's, it's very hard to do, but he's asking. So to say like, look, sitting around believing it's all going away and I have nothing to offer is not working. So we're where could some exploration start? Perhaps there's a gift in this. And if you can start to own that um, and, and start to do things that just feel joyful to you, start to try some things, the energy field is going to change and the energy field in the house is going to change and you might discover some new things that really feed you. But it's, a, it's the willingness to explore. And I, I hear you, it, it can be hard to generate that feeling when you're down. Yeah. Um, but... It can also be that there's there's something in this, there's a gift in this that's yet to be discovered. I always think like when we get questions like this where that someone thought things were going to go one way and then they don't, right? There's a lot of grief involved in that. You know, whatever is tied up in how you thought your life was going to be. And it's it's good to let yourself feel sad about that. It's not what you wanted it to be. That's okay. Yeah, you know, and like, to be clear. Instead like, of fighting it. Totally. And I mean, I... Before I started open, and by the way, now for my for my day job, I actually work at a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so this the, doing this podcast with Avi at a different podcast um, is my day job. Uh, sort of opened me up to the possibility that I never thought I would do, which is to like go apply for jobs at at podcast companies, you know. Um, and um, but but it took me. Um, I mean, I, I don't even like to do the math here because it's, it's painful, but like <laughs> it took me like over two years to, um, to kind of go through the process of kind of admitting to myself that I needed to try something in addition to writing fiction. Is that hard for you to swallow? I'm so hard on myself. It is, it. Like you know, I, I somehow it's very hard to let go. It's hard yeah. to swallow sometimes. It's hard to swallow. So I would, on, I mean, I feel actually 
proud of this characteristic of myself. I would say like 10% of the time I think about that and I'm like, oh, fuck. I cannot <laughs> believe that I wasted two years of my life. But honestly, the majority, the great majority of the time I think about it in the way that Boyd is talking about tracking is like, it's like I ended up in a place that I'm happy with. It was, it, it, it was part of this yeah. path and I'm happy now. So it you might know. be more like 60%. And, 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 the, <laughs> and the, you know, one of the lost art forms of being a man is the, is the lost art form of learning to go down. You know, it's like you're going along, you're an actor. Here comes a catalytic event. Like it starts to dry up. The industry starts to change. A whole lot of things start to change. All your ideas about who you thought you would be and how you thought your life were going to play out, they suddenly start to melt down. And one of the keys in that phase is to say, you know, how I thought it was going to be and where I thought it was going to go, well, that's, that's not happening. I don't know now what I'm meant to do. I don't know. You know, I'm sitting in Westchester and I don't know. I don't know and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And to like let yourself land in it and, and, and give up trying to fix it rationally. You know, the acting industry is a load of shit. Maybe I could apply to more things. Like stop trying to, like your identity is trying to change. So sit in the I don't know. If you can sit in the I don't know, and start to like tune into yourself, usually what happens is you start to get images. It's like something inside of you that knows what you need to do. It'll start to emerge if you give up the identity. You know, you're not sitting there thinking, I have to act, I have to act. That's the only thing that'll make me happy. That's the only thing. I don't know. Hey, well, suddenly in that unknown, things start to emerge. You know, again, this is easier said than done. This is less um, direct advice than just um, my hope for this guy, but my hope is that he can uh, let go of that should feeling. I should be a, a paid thriving actor. Um, start doing the kind of experimenting and track following that Boyd is suggesting. And also like once he's doing that, I hope he can just get back in touch with um, how lucky he is to actually have a lot of time with his children. Because now that I'm back at work, I'm like, mm. shit, that was such a luxury that I had that time with my yeah. children. And, and I did, you know, I mean, I had wonderful times, but I did spend a lot of that time kind of beating up on myself and being and not being fully present with them when I had the chance to be with them. So I hope I hope he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, that is kind of the nature of young children to be there. <laughs> Boy, we, we always finish the podcast um, asking our guests to share um, just one piece of advice that you've heard in your life that has stayed with you that you returned to. Um. Man, I'm still thinking of this guy in Westchester. I just want to be like, <laughs> oh, I'm, with, I'm, not I'm with you, buddy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I would say that, um, you know, a really big one for me came from the teacher Byron Katie, uh, whose work has been phenomenally transformational to me, a system to question your own thinking. And she, she gets you to an authentic yes, to the experience of feeling an authentic yes inside yourself and an authentic no. And I've just, it's changed my life in a lot of ways. But when someone asks me someone, something, I slow down and I, I wait for the yes or the no. And just that has put me into my integrity in, in a way that has been absolutely transformational. And people know when I say yes, I really mean yes. And when I say no, it's just no. And for a period of time, it was really hard for me to say no to people. Um, and... And just those two things, really, really powerful. Watch what happens. Watch how authentic you become. Watch how in your integrity you become when you just say yes when you mean it and no when, when you get an inner no inside of yourself. You don't try to fix it. You don't try to make it nice. You don't try to, you, you just live inside of that kind of clarity. Hmm. So really powerful. Uh, we could both use help with that. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm thinking it'll, about it'll be. It's terrifying, and, but it is extremely a powerful experience of your integrity, your own integrity. All right, everyone, that's it for our show this week. If you have a question, we've really been loving the ones we've been getting lately. Uh, you can send it to us at heymanpod at gmail.com or better yet, give us a call. Leave a voicemail at 917-426-4326. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter at heymanpod. 
And um, we've been getting lots of nice reviews. Really appreciate it. And if you haven't yet, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're getting this. It really helps get the word out. Thanks.